Hello, and welcome to the Peterborough Currents podcast. My name is Aisha Barmania. Today on the show, I have an interview with Peterborough's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Thomas Pickett. Dr. Pickett is a public health and preventive medicine specialist. He got his master's degree in public health at McMaster University. He's also a practicing family physician, and prior to Peterborough, he was medical officer of health for Labrador Grenfell. Before that, he worked as a field doctor with Médecins Sans Frontières, a.k.a. Doctors Without Borders. He's also actively involved in research and teaching on public health. And before I get into the conversation, I wanted to give you a little bit of background. So um, as I record this, it's February 2022. I spoke to Dr. Piggott about a week ago, and we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the WHO declaring a global pandemic caused by a novel and highly contagious coronavirus, which we all know now as COVID-19. Over the past two years, the world has seen COVID mutate into increasingly infectious and worrisome variants. First, it was the Alpha variant, then Delta, And just in the last few months, Omicron has picked up steam. It is a drastically more contagious variant than the previous strains of COVID. And right as Omicron hit Peterborough, our new medical officer of health started his job. That was back at the beginning of December. As he came into his new position here in Peterborough, he knew COVID was his top concern, but not his only concern. As we've reported on here at Peterborough Currents, our community is facing an ever-worsening health situation. And that is due to harms stemming from the opioid crisis. Three months ago, our team reported that 43 people lost their lives in what public health calls opioid-related deaths here in Peterborough in 2020. That's up from 29 opioid-related deaths in the year before. My colleague Brett Throop found in his reporting that opioids have become increasingly contaminated with other drugs, in particular benzodiazepines and stimulants. Our reporting found that of the opioid-related deaths in 2020, the majority involved a contaminated supply. One solution to ease the number of deaths has been proposed by a coalition of local agencies that work with people who use drugs, including public health. The solution, they say, is a supervised drug consumption and treatment site, called a CTS for short. At the site, people can use drugs while health workers and support staff are on hand to save lives in case of overdose. They're also there to direct folks to treatment and other harm reduction resources. Health Canada has approved the location on Simcoe Street for the CTS to open, but for over a year, the agencies have been waiting on an application for provincial operating funding. Tired of waiting, in the last two months, Dr. Pickett has been approaching multiple sources for funding to open this CTS as soon as possible. In my conversation with him, we talk about the opioid crisis, the pandemic, and I also asked him about recent protests that have occurred outside of, his, that have occurred outside of the public health office and outside of his own home. There have been multiple incidents in the last two months of people protesting measures intended to limit the spread of COVID. The the protesters calling for ending lockdowns, mask requirements, and capacity restrictions. Okay, and with all that said, I think I've given you all the background you need for us to hop into the interview. One last thing I'll say is that if you like our reporting and if you find that it does help you to understand more about this community, I'll ask you to please support Peterborough Currents with a financial contribution. Reader donations are the single greatest source of our financial stability. Signing up to be a member plays a big role in helping our little newsroom plan for the future, and it helps us to actually stick around. <laughs> That's not a guarantee. Head to peterboroughcurrents.ca slash support us, and thanks. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you making some time, Dr. Figgett. Thanks, Aisha. 
So I just wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about how you've been finding your first few months as a medical officer of health for Peterborough. Well, it's great to be here in Peterborough. Uh, my family and I arrived uh, in November. I started my job December 1st, so a uh, little over two months now. And uh, the for me, the community has... Um, has been incredibly overwhelmingly welcoming and kind uh you know it's it's not been without some some ups and downs so far and there's been lots of challenges especially as we've faced the omicron wave which has been the most deadly wave of the pandemic yet for our region i'm so proud and and happy to work with the group of people uh, that i do it's an incredible uh, team and, and people very dedicated and passionate about caring for this community yeah, I, I'm glad to hear um, that side of it's been going well. I, I know it must be hard coming in mid-pandemic, like folks are, I'm sure, burnt out. How, how's that transition been been coming in? The pandemic uh, has been ongoing for over two years now, and people are tired. It's been a challenge uh, to continue and to pace ourselves through this pandemic. It has been a, a series of sprints and um, every time we round the corner, we realize there's a whole new sprint or race in front of us. And, and that's tiring when, when you don't know where the finish line is, when you don't know how much longer this is going to be going on. It's, it's tiring. It's been a challenge. But I think that we have begun to learn to pace ourselves and to make sure that our response to this pandemic is sustainable. And that's been a big focus of my work, is ensuring that we have the, the team and the capacity to continue our work on the COVID-19 pandemic because it is not over yet. Mm-hmm. And I know on top of, you know, the usual work and the what you're trying to get done it, it being very difficult, on top of all that, there's been protests outside of the public health office um, and, and outside your own home. But I wondered if you could just take us through what happened there and what's been the ramifications for the team and, and for yourself. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that I can speak to because it's still uh, the matter of an active police investigation. But, uh, you know, the uh, the discontent we've seen um, has been unfortunate and, and really difficult for our team. You know, I, I understand that people... Uh, are tired and and sick of the pandemic. And, you know, I've heard many very reasonable voices share that. And I share that too. I'm tired and sick of this pandemic as well. I recognize that some people are more vocal and some people um, have wanted to express their discontent in different ways. And, and in this country, in this democracy, we have the enshrined right to protest. But unfortunately, the experiences we've had have gone far beyond that, have been intimidating, have been harassing, and have been very difficult for not just me personally but our entire team and uh, at a time when we are um, when we are tired when we've been trying to do our best trying to save lives through the pandemic um, seeing the toll that this is taking in our community and it's been difficult I think for the community to see as well and uh, and that's I think evidenced by the outpouring of support we've seen in the aftermath of these events and I've been so um heartwarmed to see how much a love and kindness and appreciation came in the aftermath of what happened at our offices at my home i think that that is uh, just a true testament to the the real uh, caring nature of this region mm-hmm. is this something that you were prepared for coming into this role or in previous roles um, as a public health official well i think there are always challenges in in public health and in the work that I've done. Uh, There are always um, 
some people that will disagree and, and express some concern with, um, you know, interventions and ideology. Concern with vaccine is not something that's new to the pandemic. It's been something I've been working on in my entire career in public health. Um, I, I mean, I've I've worked in a variety of settings now, and uh, this is by no means the the hardest context that I've worked in in my time with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières in the DR Congo, um, in a conflict zone, in an active conflict zone. The challenges uh, were far greater. The insecurity was far greater. Uh, I think, in some ways, that probably has prepared me to. Um, have the confidence to keep going and the capacity to to lead our team through this difficult time. Uh, but, you know, for many people on our team, it is difficult to continue to manage and to deal with this and to cope because um, not only are they working incredibly hard, long hours, exhausted, but then to have uh, and be on the receiving end of this kind of intimidation is um, is just that last straw that uh, that is very difficult for people to take. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's been really interesting and kind of refreshing for me to see, like, it feels like you're not pulling your punches at all. You're, you're not afraid to condemn the protesters or, or the convoy folks who are, you know, waving Confederate flags and things like that on, on your own Twitter account. Um, do you think that's important for, for you to take those kinds of stands and be clear about um, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? Well, I think it is important um, as I look at the consequences of different actions and impacts uh, that I speak to my job, which is um, to help our team, our Peterborough Public Health team, and to help make our community more fair. And where that intersects with um, recent events is being uh, defensive and and strongly taking a stance um, that I I will be in front of my team and and I will not tolerate harassment and intimidation. Um, And I think it also comes up because when we see negativity injected as, as parts of this, and it's not my place to comment more broadly on these issues, but if we see racism, if we see hatred, if we see sexism, these are things that ultimately impact the health of our communities uh, greatly and, and severely. And so I think as a leader, it's, it's my job to speak out about those uh, things as best as, uh, as I can uh, when I can. One other question about the protest uh, before I move on to a couple other questions, but I know um, some of the signs uh, that the protesters were holding outside of your own home, in particular referenced one of the tweets that you had put out uh, in regards to the protests that were happening at public health. You had said that that was unacceptable. So they said, um, if you don't like us protesting outside of public health, we'll come to your house. Is, did that incident at all affect your your thinking about social media? Did it make you question whether um, you should be posting things like this? No, I'm always very careful and reflective. I think it's it's very important to be careful and reflective in that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I'm I'm doing um, what I think is needed. Um, this and nothing is is in. Um, personal or even organizational interest. It's around the health of our community. And that's what I'm I'm here for. That's what my job is. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to also ask you a bit about, and you touched on this um, a couple of questions ago, but um, what do you see as the role of public health in, in th- terms of things like promoting health equity? And can you speak to the kind of philosophy of public health? Yeah, sure. I think that... Um, uh, 
what we have seen um, in society is um, an increase in inequity or an increase in unfairness in our society in recent years. So uh, to, to put this into context, I, I've got a quiz question for you. Do you know what the uh, do you know what the life expectancy of the average Canadian was at Confederation in 1867? Take a guess. 1867, I would guess something low, like 45. Oh, you're good. Um, it was, uh, it was 42. And, um, what do you, do you know what the life expectancy of the average Canadian is now? Um, it's different for men and women, but I think it's somewhere around like 85, 88 years old. A little less, 82. So in a little over hundred and 50 years, 154 years since Confederation, we've seen a doubling of the life expectancy of people living in this country. And that's nothing short of incredible. That's not just public health's work. That's not just the healthcare system's work. You know, we've seen jobs uh, become safer. We've seen, um, you know, communities become uh, healthier and, um, you know, we've seen the introduction of vaccines and other life-saving uh, treatments, especially early in life, that help people to live longer. But when we look at that life expectancy, 82 is an average. And when we look at subpopulations, there's dramatic differences between different groups of people. So, for instance, people experiencing homelessness, their life expectancy is at least 15 years younger than the Canadian average. Um, yeah, people who are Indigenous, um, you know, as, as a, a group, Inuit men, the life expectancy is dramatically lower, um, uh, around 67. And so people who are Indigenous, um, people um, who are uh, experiencing homelessness, people who are otherwise marginalized in various ways, have a dramatically less likely chance of, of living as long as the Canadian average. And so as much as there has historically been effort to try to reduce uh, diseases and we've made tremendous progress, but all the while the gap is growing. And so I think that that is evidence that public health's main focus needs to be in its roots, which was addressing the inequalities, the unfairness uh, between different groups and trying to help to narrow those gaps in different ways. And so that's where I believe a key focus of public health needs to be. It has been through the pandemic. Think about the equity lens that was used in um, the rollout of the vaccine. Think about our extra and enhanced um, focus on high-risk settings for outbreaks, whether they be shelters, um, other congregate living settings. Uh, we, we know that um, different groups need different attention. And that's what equity at the end of the day or fairness is, is all about, is everyone doesn't need the same thing from us in public health. Um, and we need to do what we can to get people what they need to attain the best health that they can. Um, you've also written about underserved communities, as you call it, and edited a, edit a book about it. Um, can you take us through what an underserved community is and how it relates to the kind of this idea of health equity that you were just talking about? Um, yeah, sure. So you're talking about uh, the book that I co-edited with Dr. Aria, um, uh, who is a family physician and uh, researcher in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo. And, uh, and that book was um, a, about a four-year, really exciting project um, that culminated in its publishing in 2018. Um, we, uh, we worked with people, researchers, practitioners all across the country to compile not only the evidence, 
experience on underserved populations, but a lot of stories and um, and experiences from people with lived experiences. And uh, and it was a really good learning experience for me as well uh, about these issues and about the ways in which uh, populations are underserved. Uh, the language of that was intentional. When we talk about people being marginalized or people being vulnerable, um, that language um, reflects an intrinsic problem with that population uh, and, and it essentially um, says you know it's it's somebody's own fault that they're uh, vulnerable when in reality it's that the service needs perhaps of somebody experiencing homelessness or somebody who um, is a, a new refugee to our country aren't being met and and that's why underserved focusing on the service needs from the health and social system uh, was was the intentional terminology used in that book um, so I think that work continues to guide a lot of my thinking and work in public health to this day, because uh, like we've discussed already, you know, health equity or fairness, justice um, are, are really important priorities for us to help with in public health. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back to that idea of um, average life expectancy. So rather than framing it in terms of like, I'm a person of color, so I'm going to die five years earlier than a, a white colleague. And that's my fault for being vulnerable. It's more about you know, if if that does happen to me, I, it would have been because I was underserved or or in some ways failed by the the healthcare. In uh, yeah, because we have to ask the questions: Why? Why? There's no inherent underlying biological reason. Mm -hmm. Just like there isn't really a good underlying biological reason for the gap between male and female life expectancies. Um, often that's attributable to, um, you know, a lack of accessing healthcare or um, higher risk employment conditions. Um, and, and for uh, people who are underserved, um, there aren't biological or otherwise inevitable differences. It is all a matter of um, the uh, access and, and service, both from a health system standpoint, but also throughout the life course, right? It may mean um, that you know, educational opportunities weren't the same, or it may mean that people in their early years, and, and the early years is something I'm really passionate about because it's a time that we can really change the life trajectory um, we, we can do more. And I think public health spends a lot of time trying to look at those ways that we can do more and, and provide service and provide supports to help to narrow that gap. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and to, to bring it back to the pandemic and um, what we were speaking about previously, do you see folks who are in these anti-mandate, anti-science, anti-vaccination movements as, as its own community? And are they potentially underserved? Have they been failed in some way by by healthcare institutions? I think it's an interesting question. It's something that I am trying to continue to understand with a lens of, of kindness and, and empathy, which I think is important. Um, you know, in the face of um, even the most negative uh, hatred, the response should not be counter-hatred. Um, it should be kindness, it should be justice if there's um, laws broken and wrongs committed. But uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, there probably are underlying determinants. Um, whether they're right or wrong, I think are value judgments that I'm, I'm not prepared to make. But um, if people do not understand and believe in vaccines and science, is that not in some ways a failing of our educational system? You know, we spend a lot of time on things in elementary and high school that sometimes, yeah, I think back and, and don't remember anything about. But, um, you know, have we 
done our job to um, not only teach about the safety of vaccines, but the scientific process. You know, people don't necessarily understand that in the pandemic and with the science of the COVID-19 vaccines, that has been incredible science. We've given over 10 billion doses and we have data on the safety and the effectiveness of all of those doses. We have, um, you know, had uh, the, an incredible um inpouring of investment to do science really rigorously and well so that we know that something is safe and highly effective but we've also had um uh you know uh a acceleration of this because people you know like uh, you know there's a trent university professor here i want to just take a second and talk about professor christopher kyle his focus his work is on forensics and um that's his life career and work but he stepped forward in this pandemic to contribute to science and he's leading the wastewater surveillance uh, for COVID-19 here in our community. Not because that's an academic interest or priority or area of focus for him, but because he was just passionate about doing his piece and helping out. And around the world, there are thousands, maybe millions of stories of people that have contributed to this. So, you know, coming back to this, I think I'm tremendously encouraged by all of the science that's happened in this pandemic, but a lot of people um, perhaps for ideological reasons or for reasons and misinformation that they're being fed, um, do not believe that. Uh, I think that one really er important area of education focus too is when there is misinformation circulating, sometimes people don't critically assess it enough. Sometimes the source of misinformation is actually commercial interest uh, because somebody's trying to sell some other cure um, you know, snake oil type alternative to what the science says is important. And, and people don't necessarily pick up on that. Um, and, and with social media, the misinformation spreads quickly um, and it does make it challenge to counter. But I do think, and we've been trying our best in public health to actively counter misinformation and make sure people get the facts straight. But certainly we have a lot of work to do in our schools and in our education system and in our society to help people to understand this. And I'll, I'll hold myself back from asking more about that area because it's my own personal interest, but um, and move on to a couple other questions. Um, so we've been kind of talking about the pandemic response um, as a major part of your work. Um, but we've also seen recently, and I've been impressed to see this kind of aggressive approach you're taking to funding and opening the supervised drug consumption and treatment services site. Um, can you take me through why it's so urgent for you to get that open? Well, we've been um, looking at uh, the data on overdoses uh, for some period of time now. This is an issue that has been in our uh, community and in our province for a number of years now. But what we've seen and what we saw when we uh, really delved into the data was an acceleration of this through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, when you look at the uh, number of visits uh, uh, by ambulance um, uh, for people uh, experiencing overdose. From 2020 to 2021, they doubled. Uh, when we look at deaths in the past five years, deaths in the region have gone from 10 to 44 last year. It's at the point where we're nearly experiencing one death 
every week in this small region. And uh, that is tragic. And, and that is a crisis. And that is something that we need to do more about. So I've been asking questions. I've been working with our uh, local MPP in the region, as well as, um, you know, trying to better understand how we can um, increase the uh, uh, availability of services, a variety of services, but in particular, uh, one service, which is access to a safe consumption and treatment site, um, uh, a CTS that uh, would potentially decrease um, the number of deaths and, and adverse experiences from overdose that we do experience. I think it would be um, uh, an incredibly life-saving and important um, thing for our community. Uh, and we've been asking questions as we understand, you know, it's actually been since 2020 uh, that the application went in. Uh, what else does it need? How else can we help to advance that? And if ultimately there is not going to be the funding, is that something that we can attain local funding to support and to start on? Because we know it could be life-saving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's the Health Canada exemption that lets this service operate and in theory, the province of Ontario funds CTS locations around the province and the application's been in for over a year for the Peterborough site. Um, the funding doesn't necessarily have to come from the province in order to open it. And you've just received the first plank of that funding uh, from the Board of Health, uh, $250,000. You've said that the CTS will reduce deaths, um, but we know that it won't be an end to the opioid crisis. Some have said that decriminalization might be um, a, a path towards that. Is that something you support? And would, do you think decriminalization would ease this crisis? Yes, I do. Uh, I do. I think that uh, the criminalization of drugs is a, a big part of the reason that we have the crisis that we do have. Um, I often talk and compare to alcohol, which we learned that alcohol prohibition in the 20s didn't work and backed down off that. Um, you know, alcohol continues to have a lot of negative consequences in our community, but um, it, is, it is not in the same um, way that the overdose crisis is impacting. If instead of getting alcohol from the liquor store, you had to go to the street and you had to buy it from somebody who was potentially involved in organized crime and you didn't know, are you getting water? Or are you getting moonshine? I think that that is the experience that people who use drugs, people who use opioids have on a daily basis. And the criminalization also then further exacerbates the problem by, you know, filling our prisons with people who have um, a mental illness, a substance use disorder, um, as opposed to getting people treatment that they need to send them on the path of, of recovery. Harm reduction, which this consumption and treatment site um, uh, is, is about meeting people where they're at. It's about helping to save lives so that, you know, maybe tomorrow they might be able to seek treatment. It is not necessarily an end of itself. And I think that it's important that we provide other um, solutions and other interventions, including trying to prevent this in the first place. And there's evidence around things that we can do um, trying to help people access treatment when they're ready. But as anyone who's been impacted personally by addictions will know, it is a very difficult, long journey, and we need to help people while they're on that. I understand that medical officers of health in Toronto and, and Ottawa have recommended to their boards of health that regionally, I believe, um, drug, uh, opioids become decriminalized. Is that something you would recommend to Peterborough's Board of Health? 
we have been in the early phases of exploring. Um, but uh, I think that it is a, a very um, wise move in other jurisdictions because uh, when that approach is taken, the evidence is the amount of drug use doesn't actually go up. There's nobody that's going to up and go start using a drug because it's decriminalized. But what it does do is it actually enables better access to supports, um, better access to, to treatments, and it helps to deal with this um, dangerous uh, drug supply that is the reason that uh, people are overdosing. No person who uses drugs decides, wakes up in the morning, decides, I want to overdose today. I want to take a lot of this drug and I want to overdose today. But they're playing roulette every time they buy drugs and use those drugs and they have no idea um, what's going to be in them. And so the uh, criminalization of drugs, um, the, uh, you know, the, monetary benefits that go to organized crime, um, the uh, uncertainty that therefore results for people who uh, use drugs is a big driver and a big part of the reason that um, we have the overdose crisis that we're in today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, one of my last kind of questions, I know we've gone over time and I so appreciate your patience. Um, there's other ongoing public health services, clinics, and things like that. I, I understand they've been suspended, and I don't think they're back up and running again. Is that something that we can expect to keep being suspended? And how do you see the role of those like ongoing health clinics in the overall community health? We've already started bringing some activities back online, including you know, our sexual health clinics and some other priority activities. Um, we did have to um, slow down or stop on some of those during the Omicron wave, uh, largely so that we could redirect all of our resources to getting um, a vaccine, getting booster doses out so that we knew uh, we, we would be able to save lives from that. But um, I think that over the coming weeks and months, we're going to start to bring other activities and other work that we have uh, back up, back online. Uh, we're going to do it strategically. We're going to do it um, uh, as quickly as we can because we know the other work that we do is important. Um, the pandemic has been critical. The pandemic and our response has saved, uh, I couldn't even tell you how many lives um, in this region. But at the end of the day, there are other public health issues that are really important as well, the overdose crisis being one of them. But there's so much work that we do, whether it's, you know, inspecting restaurants and beaches, whether it's uh, helping um, newborns and, and their moms, whether it's getting vaccines, other vaccines other than COVID, uh, whether it's dealing with other infections um, that are also important, whether it's dealing with, um, you know, uh, other mental uh, health issues, um, chronic diseases, and uh, prevention of disease, promotion of health. There's so much work that we do that's really important that we need to get back going on. Um, it will be a journey because this pandemic has been very difficult for our organization and for public health. And there will be time to, to heal and uh, recover and um, we need to recognize and respect that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a lot of work that we need to continue doing to protect uh, the health of this community. And uh, we're really prioritizing getting back on that. Awesome. It's a lot to juggle. And thank you so much for all your work that you're doing on it. And thank you for for being on our, our podcast. I really appreciate your time and your clear explanations of everything. I really appreciate the the chance to join you today. It was a really lovely discussion and uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime and chat and uh, good luck with the podcast. Uh, look forward to listening uh, to this and lots of other 
ideas from folks locally. I think it's um, wonderful to be here in Peterborough, uh, Nogajiwanong region, and uh, I'm uh, I'm just looking forward to the weather getting a little better and getting outside and really getting to see what this region has to offer. Thanks for listening to today's episode. It was produced and hosted by me, Aisha Barmania. The guest was Dr. Thomas Piggott, Peterborough's Medical Officer of Health. Music in this episode comes courtesy of Erica Nininger. Check out her music on Bandcamp. This podcast is a Peterborough Currents project. We're a local news outlet doing long-form and in-depth reporting on our community. We aim to connect you to the people making news and report on our community in a way that helps you understand the bigger picture. Our ability to do this work depends entirely on audience members supporting us financially. So if you find our work useful, please support us with a monthly donation. Head to peterboroughcurrents.ca slash support us to sign up. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye for now.